Without using the manufacturing capacity of allied nations, the United States probably can't fulfill its own national security needs. One reason is the apparent shortage of skilled manufacturing labor in the United States. This is all according to a study by Bloomberg government. For more, we turn to senior data analyst Paul Murphy. Paul, good to have you back. Good to be with you, Tom. And what were you looking at here? Is this having to do with replenishment of supplies and things because of what we've been shipping to Ukraine? Or is it just future aircraft, ship, plane, gun, ordnance, etc. needs? Well, what's prompted uh, our latest research is surge in demand in uh, government spending, particularly defense spending. It was at record levels last year. But I focused uh, most recently on the uh, declining number of uh, vendors in the industrial base. And this feeds into the whole, you know, the broader discussion about, you know, uh, hiring and labor shortages and so forth. But just to uh, rehash, we were... uh, ahead of the uh, hearing, we put out some numbers that showed that Pentagon has lost one of five of their small business suppliers since uh, fiscal 2018. It's down to uh, about 12,600. And it's lost one of five of their large business contractors as well. It's about 32,681. So what's causing this departure from the federal industrial base? And I think there are a number of macro and micro causes to this. And, you know, I was uh, looking at it and and came up with, oh, gosh, uh, almost a dozen reasons uh, why the U.S. is experiencing trouble with uh, hiring in the federal marketplace. All right. And well, what are the top three? Let's say (laughs) let's go there. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Virtually all of the major contractors are citing COVID-19 as one of the big problems in the last uh, couple of years, particularly last year. Companies like Lockheed, Boeing, Raytheon, they're all citing illnesses, restrictions, lockdowns, return to work requirements that have led to hiring difficulties, which in turn have led to disruptions in delivery and their supplier base has been experiencing a lot of the same uh, disruptions. So there's been uh, procurement slowdowns. And this is contributing more broadly throughout the economy to uh, a broader economic slowdown, which in general is, is slowing hiring. So there's one. So the COVID restrictions you know, are going to let up soon we think the the uh, administration is declaring an end to the uh, health emergency in may port bottlenecks and shipping supply chains appear to be uh, resolving but there are a number of uh, other issues for instance trade restrictions with chalk with China and uh, international hostilities are leading to uh, gaps in certain industries that are uh, slowing down hiring there's a big issue with reduced immigrant labor there's a a study out from the University of California Davis that the US had 2 million fewer working age immigrants at the end of 2021 than it would have had if uh, pre-pandemic immigration trends had continued. The researchers say that nearly half of the missing 2 million immigrant workers would have been college educated. And traditionally, these are workers who perform in critical industries like semiconductors and biotech. These industries have depended on immigrant scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs, and a lot of highly educated, skilled uh, workers coming from these other, other countries. And contributing to that are delays in sure. work visas, closed borders. You know, all of it's contributing to a shortage of uh, labor, particularly in uh, industries that are critical to uh, defense and the federal government. Yes, because I think people sometimes miss the fact that if you are building, I don't know, an airplane, it's filled with tens of thousands of components and parts. And those, many of them are made by small businesses, gyroscopes, instruments, connectors, all these little things that go into the hull that might be made by a big prime. That's all they make. And they buy everything else that goes in there. And could it be that just the small business and the procurement regulations and the complexity and the growing complexity of it, could that be a factor? 
limiting companies simply wanting to be in in the defense industrial base? Oh, sure. I mean, when of course, when you you know uh, limit the number of suppliers, particularly suppliers from you know, China, you, know, you have to be able to you know backfill parts that were ordered from these companies. And I think we're in the process now, you know, with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act of investing in the semiconductor industry and some of these other high-tech industries to build uh, domestic capacity and, and rebuild uh, infrastructure and all the uh, things that feed into uh, federal industrial base. But you know, something else that we've documented and, and we've, I think, maybe talked about in the past is, you know, the uh, consolidation of, of government contracts is leading to this uh, you know reduction of small businesses in the in, in the marketplace the federal marketplace and it's consolidating spending in the larger vendors and this in turn is giving them a lot more leverage in, in terms of hiring and making it more difficult for small businesses to hire and so when you combine this with you know coming off of the covid restrictions and the uh, supply chain disruptions that everybody's experiencing and inflation another factor that particularly small businesses are having to cope with is um, you know inflation when salaries are going up, you know, there's a lot more attrition, there's a lot more job shopping, there's uh, higher costs for the vendors, particularly on, you know, fixed price contracts. Sure. So it you know makes it very difficult uh, to hire and perform profitably. We're speaking with Paul Murphy. He's senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government and longtime observer of this market, I should also add. And with respect to hiring in small business, I mean, you have really two places where there might be shortages. And you mentioned the COVID restrictions. A lot of people that are in the so-called office jobs or white-collar jobs, and there's a lot of that that goes along with government contracting to do the cost accounting and contract control and all of the reporting that has to be done. Those people may want to just continue to telework and their companies may want them back. And then if there's not enough people to do the manufacturing, that's a different problem because that has to be done on site by nature of the work, and yet the people with those skills aren't out there. So is there a double pincher going on there in the small business space? Oh, absolutely. And I think the uh, government can address this by actively taking on policies that, that try and encourage more small businesses to enter the federal marketplace. A lot of these innovative contract uh, methods, you know, these non-FAR contracting methods to bring small businesses in need to be multiplied again and again, I think, particularly uh, with the small business sector, because um, there are companies out there capable of doing this work, but, you know, they need the incentive to, to be able to do it. They need to see avenues. And, you know, when, you know, you're uh, increasing the um, you know the cyber certifications you know in CMMC and FedRAMP uh, and, and and making the barriers to entry to the market you know that much higher. Um, I think there needs to be attention paid to you know all of these issues. You know the uh, supply chain, the uh, lowering the barriers to entry, diversifying the contract uh, base, and loosening perhaps the, the some of the uh, restrictions on, on awarding visas so that particularly small businesses and mid-sized firms can have access to uh, uh, the workers they need to you know, do some of this high-tech work. And when you point to the 20% of companies, both in the large company, large prime, and also the small business sector, it's still you know 20% of all the companies in the DIB. Do you know the breakdown between manufacturing companies and services companies? Are more leaving in manufacturing versus services or what? I'll be happy to get back to you on that in the next interview. 
All right, <laughs> we don't know, but uh, oh, it's 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 tight uh, in both uh, services and manufacturing. The numbers that I cited are uh, consolidated numbers, but uh, if you break it down by by manufacturing, I think you'd see that um, there are particular limitations there as well. Sure, with in the age of six digit NAICS codes, I guess it makes it hard to do a lot of the. You need some more. Uh, places in your in your analytical so is there a way out is there anything that the department can do or the, the all of the buying departments can do to encourage business formation or at least if not formation migration to the federal market well i think we're going to see some natural improvement as a result of the uh, reduced impacts of covid again you know the administration's lifting the restrictions you know on the emergency or imposed by the emergency so uh, i i think we're starting to see some resolution of the supply chain and and the shipment backlogs remember all the stories that you know out about the backlog at the port of los angeles and and uh, inability to get uh, you know goods you know uh, out of the ports i think that's resolving you know something that's interesting um, we didn't uh, touch on yet but um, you know, the companies in their 10ks are are citing you know, the inability to train workers in security compliance and to get enough workers uh, approved for high security jobs. And so I think there's some company level uh, work that needs to be done. I think, again, looking back out at the uh, the macro level, there's need to you know, need to control inflation. To uh, I think that will have an impact on job shopping and you know, wage inflation that will make uh, small and mid tier firms uh, that much more competitive because you know they have uh, a record a history of um, hiring more people per dollar uh, than large firms so i i think a focus on the more intense job creators uh, in the federal marketplace any policies that can you know, diversify the contract base and and uh, make things easier for the small companies to find the workers they need and and, and Sure. You know, pay them competitive wages. So uh, I think a lot of these things need to be done in in concert. I think you know when you talk about the you know Buy America, that tends to rub against you know some of these initiatives. And it's not just you know me advocating. You have you know the the head of the National Defense Industrial Association. You have senior people last week at the uh, the Naval Conference, uh, FCS uh, 2023 conference, West uh, 2023 right. West out in the West Coast. They were uh, talking about you know the need to diversify supplier base in order to get get the work done. And so all of these policies need to work together to reinforce a more robust uh, labor market in the federal marketplace. Paul Murphy is a senior data analyst at Bloomberg Government. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had 
so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs>
and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.